Hi. My name is uh, Chris Ilkin. I am from San Diego, California. I grew up. Hey. I grew up in Bakersfield, California. Lovely Bakersfield. Super nice this time of year. It's like 115,000 degrees. Fresno people, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Um, I have five kids, and the oldest one is seven, and the youngest one is one, so I haven't slept in like eight years, which is fantastic. Uh, but I get the privilege of getting to talk to you guys this week, and here's why, the, here's why this is really exciting, because I love what Hume like did with this theme. Uh, if you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open those up. Maybe you guys are new to the Bible. Maybe you've never read it before, opened it before, uh, but we're going to open the book of John. When I say book of John, uh, the Bible is, is labeled a lot of times by who wrote it, and in this case, it's the gospel according to John. You might be thinking to yourself, what's the word gospel mean? Essentially, Jesus Christ, 2,022 years ago, was born in the ancient Near East. And there's four guys who followed him around everywhere, and they wrote the story of what he did. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, either as firsthand eyewitness accounts or secondhand from someone that had followed Jesus around. And they basically tell the story of Jesus. And, and here's why this concept is important. This concept is important because just like the Hume-like theme, John actually, when you study it, the book of John is presented to us as a court case. What I mean by a court case is that the, maybe the pinnacle verse in all of John is in John chapter 20, verse 30, where the writer says, I wrote all these things for you. And, and, and what's the you he's, he's talking to? He's talking to you. He's talking to me. He's talking to anyone who ever reads the book of John. And John says, I wrote a whole book so that you would believe that Jesus Christ is God himself, and that by believing you would have life in his name. And when we read the Bible, what we must understand is the Bible isn't, it's not written like a fable, it's not written like a fairy tale, and it's not meant to be understood as just a sequence or a series of fun, uh, compelling, entertaining, or helpful stories. The Bible doesn't really give us permission to think of it that way. The Bible presents itself as historical fact. The Bible presents itself that these events actually took place. And we can now verify these events 2022 years, 2022 years ago later from archaeology, from manuscript evidence. So before we even kick off to know when we open this book, we are opening a, what, what the Bible calls itself a living, breathing document of actual events that happened. And I'm going to open by making two commitments to you, and I'm going to ask you to make two commitments to me. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. Uh, the first one is this. And you guys have like, uh, you have like a pet peeve in your life. You know what I'm talking about? Something just like, it's ugh, the worst. Okay, I'll tell you mine. Um, before, before I had kids, <clears throat> I was scared of, you know, normal, normal stuff. You know, murderers. I was scared of like, I grew up in, um, I, I lived in Oklahoma for 12 years, so I was like scared of tornadoes. Like that stuff kind of freaks me out. But one of my pet peeves now after having kids and that no one really tells you until after you have kids is when your kids wake up in the middle of the night and they come visit you, right? They, maybe they have a bad dream or they're scared of something or like they watch Harry Potter and they think the Dementors are coming for them, you know? Like when, when kids get freaked out in the middle of the night, one of my pet peeves is they don't enter your bedroom like a normal human being, you know? They don't, they, <laughs> they don't announce themselves politely, right? A anyone who has any parents in here know exactly what I'm talking about. And you know, as junior highs, because you remember back to when you were kids, how do you enter the room? You don't walk in like this. You're not like, 
Excuse me, mother and father, I'd like to have a quick, right? Excuse me, dad, I'd love to have a quick conversation about the freers and the frights of my heart. Right, we don't do that. It's like, <laughs> it doesn't happen. What happens instead is, and you guys will know, you'll watch me walking around camp with all five of my kids. They're the loudest, most obnoxious, right? If we were like at someone's funeral, my kids would be like, for he's a jolly good fellow. You're like, shut up. Like, <laughs> shut your mouth. And they're noisy all the time, except for one moment of their life. When they walk into your room in the middle of the night, my kids turn from a circus into stealth ninjas. And they like, it's like they, it's like they float across the floor. And here's the creepiest thing about kids. When they wake up in the middle of the night, they don't, even when they get close to you, they're not like, hey, hey dad. My kids start like breathing into my nostrils. You know what I mean? Like just, just like hot breath. And I, and I, in whatever dream I'm in, whatever's happening in my dream, my brain is like, maybe there's a dragon breathing on your face. I don't know what it is. And then you wake up and then there's this face like right in front of you. And so what do you do? You get your, what do you do when you're scared? Right? Like the first thing I do when I get freaked out is I go, which that's not good. Right? When your four-year-old comes to wake you up and you punch them, it starts, the whole house is then awake, right? It's like, it's one of my pet peeves. Let me tell you another one of my pet peeves. This is important. Because when I was your age, maybe I had this feeling when I was your age that when I would come to a camp like this, or maybe when you go to school, or maybe um, in other situations you find yourself in, maybe a, um, a soccer team that you're on, or in some sport that you play, or uh, I, don't, I don't know all your scenarios, but um, I think for me, when I was your age, one of the things that, that bugged me more than anything is if someone talked down to me, you know? Like if you guys are like what, 11, 12, 13 years old, um, somewhere in there, and Here's my belief. My belief is that the Bible is perhaps the most offensive book ever written, okay? The Bible contains in it, like if the Bible had a rating, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be uh, appropriate for children to read. It wouldn't be PG, it wouldn't be even be PG-13. The, the, the concepts, the stories, um, you might color the, you know, like David and Goliath in the Old Testament, but there are stories in here, there's concepts, there's ideas, and, th and there's this, this overwhelming concept, which is the Bible makes it really clear about what it thinks about us. The Bible, when you, open up, when you open it up and you ask it questions and you, and you read what it says about us and what God thinks about us and, and the way that we interact with God, the Bible is remarkably offensive. And, and so one of my pet peeves and a commitment that I want to make to you this week is simple. I pledge and I promise to you this. I'm not going to talk to you like kids, okay? I'm going to talk to you like adults because... The truth of what we're going to talk about, I don't think deserves to be sugarcoated for you. I think you can handle what it's saying. And there's going to be four or five, five times this week where I'm going to ask you to respond like adults. I'm going to ask you questions to contemplate. 
Uh, and, and if I sugarcoat it or I don't tell you the truth, I can't really expect you to think through these concepts that for a lot of us are things we've never thought of before. Or for a lot of us can be absolutely life-changing. Or, or, for, or for a lot of us, we're so busy in the mind-numbing and dumbing world that we live in that we never really like pick our head up and ask bigger questions in life. Why am I here? What is my purpose? Where am I going? What happens when I die? What These bigger concepts that if, if we don't ever take our head out of the sand of the world and the white noise of your culture, we're never going to pause and go, I, I better get these bigger questions answered. And there's no bigger question that the human heart can possibly answer than this one. Who is Jesus Christ? And let me tell you why that question's important. That question's important because the name Jesus Christ changed the world, right? When you look at your iPhone or maybe you look at your computer screen or whatever it is, You'll find that right now we're in the year 2022 AD, Anno Domine, which essentially means we count our whole calendar system by Jesus. The, way, the reason we started counting upwards in our calendar system is because a, what the Bible says about a five foot five Jewish carpenter, the book of Isaiah says he wasn't anything beautiful to behold. He wasn't tall in stature. He wasn't significant in his attractiveness. The Bible says in the, in the book of Isaiah, it said, in chapter 53, it says, he was a man as if people would hide their face. There was nothing overwhelming that the Bible says that would draw us to him, nothing about him that we would behold him. In fact, when people looked at him, they kind of went, you're the king of the Jews? Like, you're the king of the universe? It's you? And this guy walks around for 33 years, he existed, and only for, here on planet Earth, and only for the last three years did he even do ministry. For three years did he make his name known, and now you and I sit here 2,022 years later, and we're talking about him. Not in an age of social media. He didn't have a newspaper headlines. There was no videotapes of what he did. It was word of mouth that was so incredible and so life-changing and so offensive that all of the Jews and the Romans got together and they had this guy crucified. They put him on a cross and they nailed him there and they mocked him and they stripped him naked and they beat him senseless and they killed him and they think that that was a really great thing to do. And you have to ask the question, what are we doing now 2,000 years later? Think of all the people in history and the impact that they've made and how much you think people are going to talk about them 2,000 years from now. There's people in our world that we couldn't imagine there will come a day where no one talks about them. The biggest headline makers, the most fantastic pop stars of our day, the biggest music makers. We talk about them right now all the time, but you got to be kidding me if you think we're going to talk about any of them 2,000 years from now. We are fickle. We are feeble-minded people. I can prove it to you. What's your name? Sam. 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 What is your great-grandfather's name? Bill. Bill. What is his dad's name? John. John what? You don't know your... Okay. Fantastic. What's your name? Kendall. Kendall? Yeah. Kendall, what's your grandpa's name? Uh, <laughs> Was that a, are you asking me if it's Larry? You're like, Larry, is it Larry? I don't know your mom. I don't know your family. <laughs> is it Larry, Chris? I don't know. Is it Larry? Yes. What's his dad's name? You don't really remember. Okay, literally, the blood that flows through his veins flows, flows through yours. We're talking about a period of about 80-ish years. You got no clue who the guy is. He is why you're here. And you're like, I don't, is it Larry? Was it Larry? <laughs> Most of us 
Our family tree is really strong for like one generation. Most of us, I'm like, what's your mom's name? You'd be like, nailed it. And then after that, it it's all gets kind of fuzzy. Why? Because no matter how intensely someone lives or what they do, history has shown something over and over again that as the years and the decades fly by, only the most significant of all historical figures still last. And here we are, thousands of miles away from the events that took place, thousands of years later at Hume Lake Christian Camp. That, it literally, the whole name of the camp revolves around Christ, Jesus Christ. We're talking about the guy 2,000 years later. I would hope for you that by the end of this week, I'm going to hope that your heart makes a decision one of two ways. And that you'll either understand the story of Jesus. That's what John tries to get at. John says, I want to tell you the story of Jesus. And some of you in hearing the story of Jesus are going to reject him. You're going to say, good information. I get it now. I understand who Jesus was. I understand who Jesus is. I understand what God requires of me. And as an adult, I'm not going to sugarcoat anything for you. And I'm going to tell it to you like it is. And by the end of this week, you're going to go, I'm out. But at least you're going to have a reason for rejecting Jesus. That's my hope. My hope is that you make a reasonable, conscious decision. Now, what is my deep desire? What is, what is God's deep desire? God's deep desire is that you would pursue him, that you would know him, that you know that you are loved by him, that you would be found in him, and you would be saved through him. But I really hope that presenting the court case of John to you, the person of Jesus Christ through the book of John, you, as young adults, are going to make a decision about what you're going to do with Jesus. Because my pet peeve is when people don't tell me the truth about facts that I need to make decisions in my life, and I'm not going to do that to you. So my first commitment is that I'm going to tell it to you like it is and not sugarcoat it. I'm going to treat you like adults. My second commitment to you is I want to ground everything that I say in this book. Every comment that I make, everything that I say, I want it to be grounded in the text. Because I don't want you to know what I think. I want you to know what God thinks. And here's what I'm going to ask from you in response. I'm going to ask two things. The first one is that you lean into the conversations as we have them. That all day you go and you hang out and you do these things. But it's pretty significant what you do with Jesus. It's the most important thing about any human being. There's a great theologian named A.W. Tozer, and here's what he said. He said, what comes to someone's mind when they hear the word God is the most significant thing about them. Isn't that an important question? The most significant thing about any human being is what they think when they think of God. Let me help you out. Let me tell you why. If you think there is no God, and someone says the word God, well, then here's how you understand yourself. You are an accident, a bunch of pre- Biotic materials got together and created you, but you are just stardust, which means there's nothing really good or bad. The world isn't really beautiful, and you are just some cosmic mistake and cosmic accident. If you believe there is no God, then when you hear the word God, all you think of is that's an illusion. That's what religious people believe in, but me, I am just part of some cosmic coincidence. I have no intrinsic value or meaning, and every, my life ultimately is going to end in death, and nothing really matters. Some people, when they hear the word God, all God is is someone up in the sky who hates everyone and wants to make sure none of us have any fun. Well, don't you think that's going to change your life if you think that? And some of us are going to understand God accurately. What a man and a woman thinks about when they hear the word God is the most significant thing about them.
a man named C.S. Lewis, who's another theologian, he said, that's an interesting concept. But I've got a question that's a little bit more interesting. And let me uh, kind of summate tonight. I know you guys, you've been on buses for a long time, and so I'm going to keep tonight really short. But, but follow me with these two questions. The first one being, when you hear the word God, what do you think about? You don't have to answer it out loud. You can write it in your journal if you want to. We'll be discuss, discussing this in cabin time. But when you hear the word God, what do you think about? Does it make you mad? When you think about God, do you think about a God who's absent in your life? When you think about God, does it make you upset? When you think about God, does it make you feel comfortable? When you think about God, does it make you feel peace? Or does it make you anxious? When you hear the word God, what comes to your mind? Do you think of Morgan Freeman from Bruce Almighty, right? Just like some transcendent voice that speaks. Do you think of a loving father that desires to know you? What comes to your mind when you think about God? C.S. Lewis said, that's a great question, but I'll do you one better. There's a more important question than what comes to your mind when you think about God, which is what comes to God's mind when he thinks about you? Maybe you've never thought of this concept before, but God, the Bible tells us, knows everything. He is omniscient. That means there's nothing in the universe that God doesn't know, which means, what's your name? Roman? Is your name Roman? Is your name Caleb? Here's what I want you to think about. When every moment that you've ever existed, God's been thinking about Roman. Every moment that he's ever existed, God's been thinking about Caleb. You can put your name in the blank. This is going to be weird for a lot of us because maybe we think that God is just some divine eye in the sky that sees us as a big people group. But the Bible in Psalm 139 says, you were knit together in your mother's womb. You were fearfully and wonderfully made. God knows every hair on your head, which means God presently in this moment, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who spoke light into existence is thinking about you. You are on God's mind right now. You have to be because he's omniscient, which means he's always knowing all things all the time. So this crazy concept, whether you've thought about him at all today, he's been thinking about you constantly since the moment you were conceived. And I'll ask you a question. Don't answer out loud. What do you think God thinks about you? When God thinks about you, what do you think he thinks about? Here's how the book of John begins. Here's how the court case of Jesus Christ begins. We're going to read this. I'm going to finish it with a question, and then we're going to get out of here. But walk with me through the beginning of this book. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, says this. Okay? Try now, in this moment, to think of where this book was originally read. Okay? It wasn't read in 2022 America. It wasn't read in the western part of the United States it was read most likely by a group of Christians who were being persecuted for their faith, who may have been driven underground. There was, uh, there was empires in place right now that would kill you if you had a Bible. They would cut your head off if you talked about Jesus. And so this could be the situation that we find the readers, the original hearers of this book in. So imagine all of us right now underground, we're underneath Roman oppression, Diocletian reigns or uh, Nero reigns in his circus, and every day your friends and your relatives are being taken into Nero's circus, fighting grizzly bears and being killed by lions and being murdered for believing this about Jesus. And here you and I sit underground and the book is being read to you for the first time. You're obsessed with who this Jesus guy 
was. You've heard his stories. You've understand what his, what his followers have said. And you've watched family members and friends go to their death proclaiming Jesus. And all of a sudden, the scroll of John comes across your desk. And it's time for the reader of your group to read the story of Jesus. And John begins like this. He says, in the beginning. Okay, if you're a church kid, where do we tend to hear that phrase? In the beginning, where do we tend to hear it? Genesis, okay? The very first page of your Bible, Genesis 1 verse 1, it says this, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and God said, let there be light. That's how the whole Bible starts. So John, in a really unique way, starts his book the same way, and so he's telling us as readers to think about this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John's telling us something crazy right here. John's trying to tell the story of whom? Jesus, that's right. And he starts the story of Jesus by talking about creation. Do you want to know why? Because Jesus was there. Jesus wasn't born on December 25th of the year zero. That's not when he came into be. That's when he became man, but he has always lived. So John starts his gospel by going, did you know that Jesus has always been here? He was not created. He was not, he, he was not someone's uh, just go into a lab and make him as an experiment. Jesus has always existed. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus is God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made, the text says. And, John, and Jesus goes on in this book, and we're going to read it this week, to make really bold, offensive claims. But the Bible wants us to begin the book of John by thinking back to creation. Here's what happened in creation. God made everything perfectly. Then he made man and woman, Adam and Eve, and he put them in perfect communion with himself. Everything was, in the Hebrew, tov ma'ov. Very good. It was perfect. And then something happened. There was a serpent, who we now understand to be Satan, that came to the garden, and he started talking to Adam and Eve. And, he, and the serpent starts to ask him questions. And the, the Bible says that the serpent was more crafty and more clever than any of the wild animals. And this serpent walks up, and here is what he does. He looks at Adam and Eve, who have God, who are walking with God, who are communing with God, who are in love with God. Adam and Eve are in love with one another. Everything's perfect. And then Satan walks up, and he plants plants a seed of doubt in their mind. And Satan says this. He says, what if, what if God's withholding something from you? I know I might be crazy. You know, I'm just a serpent. I know you can call me Satan, whatever you want to call me, but maybe I'm crazy. But have you ever thought of this idea, Adam and Eve? What if God's holding out on you? What if there's a better reality that you could be a part of, but because God wants to be God by himself, he's not inviting you into it. Have you ever thought about the reason he doesn't want you to eat from that tree over there? Remember he said you can eat anything you want, but don't eat from that one tree. Do you want to know why he said that? And I don't know if I should tell you this because I'm the crafty serpent and maybe I know too much, but here's what I think. I think that the reason God doesn't want you to eat from that tree is because he knows that when you eat it, you'll be just like him. And instead of having to follow him and worship him, you'll be your own gods and you'll have your own kingdoms. And I think maybe God's holding out on you. You see what Satan does? 
He says Satan is crafty and he's clever. And so I want to end this conversation by asking you a really interesting question, which is, if you were Satan and you're not, if you were Satan and you wanted to convince a junior higher, if you wanted to convince yourself, okay, and you wanted to pull attention away from God, and you wanted to confuse people, and you were a crafty, sneaky, sly, intelligent, clever serpent, and you wanted to convince a junior higher in the year 2022, and you wanted to confuse them, and you wanted to frustrate them, and you wanted them to turn away from God, and you had all the power that you could muster, what scheme would you come up with? What, what clever device would you come up with? Let me, let me tell you what I think the answer is as we leave tonight. God reveals himself to mankind with analogies, okay? An analogy is, is where God, in the Bible, he'll say, I love you so much. I don't even know how to explain to you how much I love you. I love you, oh, man, how could you understand it? I love you like a good father loves his son. I love you like a good father loves his daughter. Yeah, I love you like a father loves a son. I know you couldn't even understand. If, if I tried, God says, if I tried to help you comprehend the heavenly language of how deeply I love you, you would never get it. You couldn't because you, your mind is finite. So let me use a human analogy. Let me use a human institution. And I love you like a father loves a son. And then God Elsewhere in the scripture says, I want you to know how, how committed I am to loving you. I love you like a husband loves a wife. I love you so much. I would die for you. I would give anything for you. And a good husband looking at their beloved wife would give anything for them. Yeah, yeah. So God says, I love you like a husband loves a wife. I love you like a father loves a son, like a father loves his daughter. Now imagine you were a crafty serpent. What would you attack? If you were a crafty serpent and God had revealed himself through the means of being a good father and a good husband in a good marriage, what would you attack? You would want to confuse those analogies. And for a junior higher, you know that this is true in your own life. And I don't need you to raise your hand. But so many of us, when we think about God as father, is it kind of a hard picture for us to understand? Because our own dads, for a lot of us, some of them were absent. Some of them were neglectful. Some of them have been confusing to us, in some cases verbally abusive. And so what, why, why is that the case? Because Satan knows that God has said, I am a father. So what does the clever serpent do? He confuses what we think when we think about fathers. So that you might want nothing to do with the father of the universe, with the God of all things. And if God says, I love you like a husband loves a wife, what do you think Satan, the crafty serpent, is going to attack? marriage. 10 points for Gryffindor. Why? <laughs> because if God says, I love you covenantally like a good husband loves his wife who would do anything for her and would never let her go, Satan goes, oh yeah. I'm going to make that really confusing with a divorce rate around 50% and there's people in this room. Your parents are divorced. Your parents, you've watched it firsthand. You felt the pain of that and the brokenness of that. And so when you read in the scriptures that God loves us like a husband loves a wife, you go, what? That's confusing for me. 
What I like to think is that anytime Jesus reveals himself through an analogy to us, anytime Jesus calls himself something to help us understand how much he loves us and, and how much he cares for us, I think Satan attacks those things. So why are we having a conversation about truth? In John 14, 6, Jesus stands on the side of a mountain and he makes a divine proclamation and Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. So if I'm a clever serpent in 2022 and Jesus called himself the truth, what do you think I want to confuse? The truth. You see, if you walk around at your schools and you think there is no truth, or if you think to yourself, I think as long as people think it, everything can be true, or truth is not knowable, or truth is whatever people vote or whatever people feel. You see, Satan has us right where he wants us. In the middle of the confusion that when Jesus calls himself truth, the crafty serpent comes by again and goes, let him attack the very thing that Jesus uses to help us understand who he is. See, guys, we shouldn't be confused at why truth is so confusing. Truth can be so confusing because Satan is attacking it. And the enemy wants us to be confused. So my goal this week is to oversimplify everything in an otherwise confusing world. And I'll finish with this oversimplification. Are you ready? This is what the Bible says. The question I asked you, what do you think when you think about God? These are the two questions I want you to go over in your cabin time along with the other ones your counselors, small group leaders, youth pastors have come up with. Here's the two that I want you to answer tonight. Number one, when you think about God, what do you think about? And you can be honest. And the question, second question I want to ask you is, when God thinks about you, what does he think about? And let me help you with the second question. The Bible says there's only two possible answers to the second question. And I told you from the beginning, I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. I'm going to tell it like it is. The Bible says that when God thinks about you, he only thinks one of two possible things. The answer to the question of what God thinks about you, you don't need to overcomplicate it. It says one of two things. The book of Romans chapter 1 makes it very clear. The book of Galatians chapter 5 makes it very clear. When God thinks about us, he thinks about one of two things. We are either his children. We've surrendered our life to him. Jesus died on the cross and paid the price for our sins. And then Romans 8, 15, we've been brought into adoption. We are now his kids. There's no condemnation, Romans 8, verse 1, found in us anymore. We are his children. When God thinks about some of us in here because we surrendered our life to him, he thinks, that's my boy. That's my girl. I love him. I love her. They are my everything. I'm passionate about them. I love them. I died for them. And I'm going to be with them forever and eternity. The other alternative, and there's only one other alternative. The Bible says that if we are not children of God, we are enemies of God. It's not Switzerland. There's not a third option. There's not a whole bunch of different things you could possibly, the Bible makes it really clear. And the reason I'm telling you this is because if you walked in here thinking that there's some third, fourth, fifth option, or that you don't follow Jesus, but it's okay because we're cool, because me and Jesus are tight, because I haven't, I'm not really... Uh, I'm not mad at him. I don't scream at him. I don't swear too much. So me and God are cool. I want to make it really clear for you. We all sit in one of, one of two positions when it comes to God thinking about us. We are either his children or we are his enemy. Romans 5 verse 10 through 13 says. So this is what I want you to ask yourself tonight as we enter into this week. And I told you I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. John says it would, be, it would be reasonable to expect that truth would be confusing because Jesus calls himself the truth. So what is the truth of these two questions? 
When you think about God, what do you think about? And when God thinks about you, what does he think about you? And if it is enemy, do you want to do something about that? Or do you just not really care? If it is child, what does it mean to live as a child of God? What does God think about when he thinks about you? Let's finish in prayer. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you that the book of Romans chapter 5, where you reveal your character to us, it even says in the text there, where we find out that we are either children of you or we are enemies of you, that it says right there in the text that while we were still your enemies, you built a bridge to connect us to you. That even though there's some of us in this room who currently, we are enemies of you, that you built a bridge, that you died on the cross and you gave up your life as a love offering and your loving kindness calls us to repentance. That even though some of us in here are your enemies, that you have made a way for us to become your children. God, the gospel, the whole Bible is one big story and it does one big thing. It teaches us as enemies how to become your children. It's all about your son, Jesus. And it's all about the question of what does God think when he thinks about me? And God, whether we are children of you or we are enemies of you, may we all be comforted by the idea that your great meta-narrative of the universe is that you have come and you have paid the ultimate price that those who were once enemies can become children. We rest in the peace of that truth tonight. Shall we pray? Amen.